0: okay let's do this how are you people what what was that What? The... okay let's do this how are you what's up with what... what is my intro okay let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fuck sticks what the fuckstables what that still doesn't feel right what's happening to my brain hey it's mark yeah, it's me mark marin oh my god this is WTF. Welcome to the show. What's happening? What is happening? Am I having a stroke? Hey, okay, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? That's how it goes, right? Oh my God. What just happened? Whew, take a breath, man. I shouldn't have gone on that jog. I'm Mark Maron. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. I hope I make it through this one. What is happening to my brain? On the show today, author John Ronson, a British fellow, a British Jewish fellow, which, as you know, if you listen to my show, fascinates me, the uh, the existence of Jews that speak with that accent. Uh, it always blows me away So, for some reason. He's the author of uh, several things that you may know. Uh, the Men Who Stare at Goats is his book. Them, Adventures with Extremists is another one of his books. The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry, was the one that got me in there. He was here from Britain, from the UK, uh, Now I, I seized the opportunity. I'd been on his radio show, and I wanted him to be on mine, and we had a nice chat. That is coming at you momentarily. The psychopath, psychopaths and sociopaths. Who hasn't been called a sociopath, huh? Well, if you haven't been called a sociopath by a woman, you haven't lived. If you haven't been called a sociopath by a lady you broke up with, you didn't do it right, I guess. Word gets bandied about a bit without necessarily being grounded in anything, but anger and heartbreak, not necessarily clinical diagnosis. Huh? Am I being too vague? Hey, look, the past is the past. What's going on with me, you ask? Is that of interest to you? I bought a bicycle. I bought a bicycle impulsively. I bought a bicycle because I had to. I bought a bicycle to make my lady happy it's already starting things are being accumulated to make the lady happy yeah that's happening she had mentioned maybe a week or so ago how fun it would be to maybe uh ride bikes around where she lives down a bike path she'd mentioned the bike riding we went to look at bikes i said i'm going to get a bike i i connected with this black cruiser seven speed no frills Nice big, you know, the handlebars weren't like, look, I'm doing something athletic. The handlebars were more like, hey, I'm riding a bike. It had had the, hey, I'm riding a bike handlebars, not the, uh, man, I'm pushing it handlebars. And I'm like, that looks cool. Big old black bike with a cool green stripe on it. I might get that bike. So I bought a bike and we went bike riding and it was pleasant and nice. And then we got back to her, her, her house, a little sweaty, and that's when the chaos began. Uh, I'm trying to uh, you know, get to know her nine-year-old daughter. And that's going well. Because I, I decided that I'm just going to lay back and be myself. That was my plan. Just going to be myself and uh, let it come around. Just be myself. And we were at dinner the other night uh, with uh, another mommy and a kid. Uh, her daughter's friend. And uh, I had scrambled over to dinner after trying to get some stuff done. I'd just gotten out of the shower and my hair was wet and I went into dinner and uh, Matilda, Moon's daughter, uh, looked at my hair and she goes, what's going on with your hair? And I go, it's, uh, it's." Uh, before I could even say anything, she said, "I think, uh, I think you're trying too hard. What? And I said, it's wet. And she goes, yeah, I think you're still trying too hard. I said, there's no it's, there's no gel in it. Feel it. It's just wet. She felt it. She goes, yeah, it's wet. So I'm not trying too hard. It's just wet hair. There's no gel. There's no product. There's no product in the hair. This is, this is a conversation I'm having with a nine-year-old. She goes, yeah, okay. I said, look, I just I just took a shower because uh, I know you're sensitive to smells and I didn't want to stink when I came to dinner. And then she goes, yeah, see, you're trying too hard. Boom. Set up, punch. So after the bike ride, we get back to the house. And that's when a bit of chaos breaks loose. A little bit of chaos. Uh, turns out the babysitter or uh, or the daughter's friend or the daughter's friend's mom who was hanging out. Somebody had fucked with the remote out in the back where the TV is. And this is where I learned that nobody fucks with Moon's remote. So that was that was rough for a few minutes. There was a way where it's hooked up to a home entertainment system. I don't understand the remote. Something's been fucked up in any number of several machines. It was chaos, emotional chaos. She was trying to fix it. I didn't know the remote, but I with a little time I could probably figure out the remote, maybe. But uh, that wasn't an option. I couldn't even suggest anything without without some emotional shrapnel coming my way. And then she says, "Well, my ex husband set up this remote." And I go, well, maybe we should not think the entire world is ending and that you no longer have your electronic babysitter or your relief mechanism to enjoy uh, movies and stuff. Let's not let's not let the world crumble. It's not the end of Fight Club here. It's a remote control problem. Why don't you call your ex-husband, see if he can tell you on the phone what the fuck is going on with the remote. Here's the funny thing is that she really didn't know how to fix the remote, but she was pretty sure that nobody else did. I, I understand that sentiment. So she left. I didn't know what she was doing. So I hit a couple buttons. I didn't see any change in the remote, but I didn't know how to ro- I didn't know how to work that remote anyways. I didn't know what the hell the system was. And then I took a breath. I was trying to be the grounded, calm one in this situation so everything wouldn't fall apart. And I walked in, I'm like, what's up? She's like, well, Paul's coming over. So the ex-husband's now coming over to examine the, uh, the remote situation. So then Paul comes over, who I, 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 I met a few times, we get along. He's, he, was, he, he left the dinner table. This is a pretty decent ex-husband and father, if you ask me. Came over to check the remote out at his ex-wife's home. He goes out back with her, and uh, they come in, and he says, there was nothing wrong with it. And, and Moon says, you fixed it, Mark. And I'm like, well, you know, it's weird I didn't know I fixed anything I'd like to take credit for, it, but I was not aware of it. I just pushed a couple of things on there and I'm, I'm glad I fixed it. I did feel good about that, but I couldn't feel the full victory because I didn't know I fixed it. I was just out there pushing buttons. And let me ask you something, folks. How often do you push buttons and get good results? Huh? How often? Exactly. So look, I I think right now I th- I think I, I feel the presence of a drop in guest. Is is that possible? Is I I feel, uh, the the presence of a drop in guest just by coincidence, the star of Review. A it's a new show on Comedy Central that you can watch at ComedyCentral.com, Andy Daly, thank you for having me here. Absolutely,
1: I'm excited. It's been a while since I've seen you. I know. Uh, That's well, true. For I've been those hearing ju- from you. You've been hiding from me. Yeah, kind of. I just,
0: I heard someone yelling my name in front of my house and Andy
1: Daly was in the neighborhood. Let's play it like
0: that. Okay, that's
1: good. Spontaneous. Yes. I wonder what Mark's doing. I'm wandering around trying to, well, I printed up flyers about my new show on Comedy Central and I'm just going door to door, putting them on windshields and in mailboxes and stuff like that. Well, can you do me a favor? Yeah. Take
0: that fucking thing off my car. All right. That's my property. It's private property. You don't come up and put flyers. On people's private property.
1: Well, but I think you're going to thank me once I you read it and you tune into the show. I <laughs> feel like I'm glad that was on. This my is car. starting to
0: feel like you had an agenda. When you what came, do you mean? when you're just walking around my neighborhood handing out flyers, you come in, you think, well, maybe we'll sit down with Mark. I made it
1: seem kind of casual. It started I, off casual. You yeah. got, you know, you you started in with the agenda very quickly. I, I'm aware that you have a, that you have a show here and that there are microphones. <laughs> and I took me an hour to massage my way back here into the garage. Well, you got a podcast now too, right? That's true. We, we, uh, we might as well just do an
0: Andy Daly plug fest. I
1: think that would be a great Since idea. Since you're in the neighborhood. Can we redo my WTF? I don't think I came off well in that. Let's just do a whole hour. Want to <laughs> just do it quickly? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. Uh, <laughs> sum it up. <laughs> if you, um, I, look, I'm great. There's no reason to be self-deprecating. I was overly self-deprecating the okay. last time I was here. I'm great. I've always been great. Everything is going great. people should take a look at me okay that's all that's all i wish i'd said how do you like that we don't
0: even need to do another hour i think we covered it okay good so we got that out of the way wonderful that that was that will be considered your second wtf this supersedes
1: that first wtf where i made a very compelling case against myself for an hour i think there was some honesty there and perhaps you feel better today
0: yeah. Perhaps things are going better for you now, but that's let's right. look at that as a portrait of Andy Daly in a self doubting, more self deprecating mode. Okay, fine. I think you felt pressure yes. to have something wrong with you. Uh, yeah, I have some and You got to like, like, I feel okay, but that's not what Marin wants. Right. I got to
1: dig into the past to find some things that he's I've done start wrong.
0: Poking around.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Well, look, I'm I'm uh, I'm thrilled that uh, things are going well for you because I'm a fan of yours. Thank you. I enjoy yours. your work on uh, Eastbound and Down and mm-hmm. uh, the other things, everything else you show up in, and where everyone goes, like, hey, there's Andy. I That was just Andy Daly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You're you're, you're one of the great character actors of the character of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you find that you're the guy that they go to for an Andy Daly type of
1: guy? I get a lot of Andy Daly types. Yeah. (laughs) I get a lot of uh, friendly doctors and, yeah, friendly Uh friendly principals, friendly professionals. But but capable of going over the top if necessary. Yep. With some strange, controlly anger. Right, exactly. Very passive aggressive. (laughs) Yeah. Very angry guys (laughs) bubbling up under the surface. So, what's this podcast? What? What have you thrown your hat in the ring with? Yeah. Well, I did this thing. You know, I do characters on Comedy Bang Bang, and the thought was to give each character I've ever done on the Comedy Bang Bang podcast uh-huh. his own podcast. And so it's it, each guy has one episode of his own podcast. It's called the Andy Daly Podcast Pilot Project. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, it's great. That's an earwolf. And I'm great. That's, an, great. Earwolf. That's an earwolf That's thing? That's an earwolf thing. But look, I'm only doing eight of them. That's what makes it special oh i'm doing eight of them and then i'm walking away for the ages eight for the ages for the ages.
0: no reason to chase that dragon that's right you just say i got a plan yeah succinct number of episodes Mm -hmm. there'll be cult classics right people will find them when they find them no pressure on me i got other things to do that's exactly right yeah god damn i'm having my own interview with you
1: (laughs) So yeah. what is this television business? Well, that's more important because it's more profitable. The, the television show is on Comedy Central. It's called Review. It premieres March review 6th. Review with Andy Daly? No. Just Review. It I am Andy in it. Andy Daly's Review. Incorrect. That's not the title. It is. I am in it. It is Andy Daly's. Andy's Re- Reviewing Shit. That's not the title. The title is just Review. But A- Andy but Daly. All of the other things you're saying about it are true. <laughs> it is with me, but that's not. I'd like to add that. I think you should call them and. You could listen, there's gonna be the I'm gonna have the billboard over there on uh over Pink Dot. You can get up there with some pretty You get that pink.
0: you're gonna get that billboard? They're gonna get that billboard. Your big fucking mug? Yeah. Your mug's gonna be on above Pink Dot where not I not met that. Axel Rose. Is that where you met Axel Rose at the time? I, I,
1: I high fived him. Was he delivering out. for Pink Dot at that time?
0: I don't know what he was doing. I All just right. uh I knew it was him and I went Axel and I high fived him right under where you're gonna face
1: is gonna be. Beautiful. I know. I'm also going to be in Times Square on a billboard, but it's a video billboard, so it's probably me and a hundred other people cycling. Not gotten, not gotten billboards. I've never had a billboard.
0: Is that right? Yeah. I don't know what IFC's doing, but I've never had one. I would have liked one billboard, IFC's Marin on yeah. Sunset. That would have been a big thing for me, but I didn't get that. So I go- would be
1: cool sharing my billboard with you.
0: Can I just put something up there maybe yes, at please, night? Please do. Just maybe a little poster, Marin on IFC. I would like that very much. On your face. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this show review, Andy.
1: Well- it's an adaptation of an Australian series. Holy where- shit, you just ripped off an Australian series. See, <laughs> no, they're happy about it. These guys are <laughs> delighted. <laughs> no, this is how uh, many happy to be great
0: American shows have been mm-hmm. uh, taken from the format. Yes. Of a, of
1: a foreign model. Listen, it has an international pedigree mark. a no, selling point. no problem with it. Good. So they ran it for two years over there, and it's about a guy who reviews life experiences rather than reviewing books, movies, or food. People will say, what's it like to have road rage? What's it like to be a racist? What's it like to be addicted to drugs? You're going to be talking to people. No, I go out and do it. This character that I play named Forrest McNeil. Receives this and, ha- and believes himself to be doing something important for the good of humanity and to be capable of unique insights into all facets of life. And so he goes out into the world and he experiences these things and rates every experience on a scale of one to five stars. And in the process, all sorts of things get ruined. His wife, his job... So this is a scripted thing. That's correct. Oh, see, that's why that's
0: not review with Andy Daly or Andy Daly's review. I had no idea there was was a high concept
1: in that it was scripted, and you're not playing Andy Daly, you're playing a character. I'd say it's the highest possible concept. Yeah. Uh, It used to be called Review with Forrest McNeil. Mm-hmm. But somebody pointed out that that's a fictitious name that doesn't mean anything to anybody and won't encourage anyone to tune in. You're hoping that eventually it will mean something to people. Right. Maybe in season two. That guy, Forrest McNeil's an interesting guy. Yeah. Andy Daly's
0: doing a good job playing him in that show Review. Because he's great. And yeah. you take a look at him. <laughs> and he feels good about, he feels good about <laughs> he's everything. He's feeling
1: great. Nothing's wrong.
0: Nothing is wrong. Yeah. How is everything? <sighs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> did you shoot them all already we shot them all we shot nine of them uh-huh and uh yeah how'd they go they went great they really went incredibly we had andy blitz and leo allen and kevin dorf uh writing for it, and jeffrey blitz who directed that one of those guys lives in all my old department really mm-hmm. you guess which one andy blitz nope Leo Allen. Yes. Good. Mm-hmm. Second try. Uh, Carol Kolb of The Onion also wrote on it. Uh, Jeff Blitz directed that documentary Spellbound. About Andy's brother. Bees. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, also like directed a bunch of The Office. Yeah. So this is a very mockumentary style, and uh, he's amazing at that. So, and was there improvisational elements? There was a lot of improvisational elements. As a matter of fact, we were originally supposed to only shoot eight. But we did so much improvising on the set that at some point we were like, oh, we have nine episodes. So there's nine. How does Comedy Central feel about this project that you've done for them? They feel it. They seem excited about it. You know, it was originally supposed to premiere last summer and they pushed it because they felt like they wanted to get behind it a little bit more with billboards and stuff like that. And they didn't have the promotional budget at that time. So they were like, let's push it till a time when we can really afford a billboard. Yes, pretty much. (laughs) Which is absurd. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's what it's all about That's with that. That's how them. it is. You yeah. get a
0: certain amount of money per quarter. That's right. For promotion. That's exactly what happened. Right. And they're like, we're a little short. Yes. We'd like to give you more than, uh, than the flyers that you're
1: handing out yeah. in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They literally could not afford a billboard in 2013. That That's is right. why we <laughs> had to sit around for eight months. So when do we, do you
0: want to do the call uh, for the splitting the billboard? Should we call somebody over there?
1: It's, look, it's going to be awkward because you're on a different network. Let's just say it right right off. It's not going to be an easy sell to Comedy Central, but you so know. Should we go the gorilla way? I think, yeah, I think we go the gorilla way. Should I have shepherd right.
0: Ferry put my picture up there?
1: He would be happy to do it. Yeah, <laughs> black and white. You might come off
0: looking a little heavier than you are, right? And it just says Marin underneath. <laughs> yeah, and, and then obey, yeah. obey Marin, but not hope. No, no, <laughs> no. There's no reason. <laughs> there's no hope. reason to push that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm the. Uh, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it'll work out. That's too much. Mi- too much. If I try a- hard, but not too hard. So what are you doing now? You're just gonna go go on flyering or? yeah I'm staying with that conceit
1: yeah i I have a lot I have ten more flyers mm-hmm. I have to figure out strategically where to put them mm-hmm. uh York's kind of popping right now. there's a lot of things down there. What's your opinion of donut friend? be honest yeah,
0: well, you know be honestly, uh you know I'm gonna judge a donut without shitting it, okay, and yeah so let's just take the donuts as they are. they're a little dense.
1: I said, I'm glad. I knew you'd have a true answer to that question. Because I feel feel the same way. I don't need all the fancy toppings. Right. The donut itself, though, it's better than I'm getting at any of the other donut areas in the neighborhood. True. So I go in there. I ask for a plain uh, chocolate donut with some glaze on there, Uh and I'm usually I'm quite happy. But don't I don't need any of the bells and whistles.
0: Well, I mean, it's a nice option, but it's like you're still going to judge your donut. So you like the donut? I do. The uh, not too cakey.
1: I've had better donuts. Okay. But I have not had a better donut within a ten mile radius of donut friend.
0: I, I'm, I support his business. Yes. I am glad he's here and people seem to be enjoying it. Yes. But I had an old fashioned, which is frankly my favorite kind of donut, uh-huh. it's also called a buttermilk donut. Okay. Uh, and that was good too. Mm-hmm. I think my experience in basing the cakey is just on the basic donut. You yes. know, the, you know, the, what would you call them?
1: I, uh, I just want to point out we have now talked about Donut Friend for far longer than we talked about review. And that's a real problem. Review with Andy <laughs> Daly, your show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, no, I'm just afraid somebody at comedy central is going to say did you go down to Mar- Marin's garage to promote the donut shop around the corner or to honest. promote the tv show well, let me
0: be honest with you all right you know this is between you and i okay. they're not paying me extra for this i don't think i, I said oh, comedy central is not no i, I think i said uh andy Daly. I, I would like to uh help him with his yes. show thank you uh, you know i already do a deal with uh, with comedy central we'll be plugging it anyways this
1: was a friendship oh, thing i, yes, said, I want I you know to... and i appreciate it so it's what you're saying is it's my job to keep us on topic no, I am I want to talk about donuts now. We talked about your, your thing.
0: Okay, all right. No, no, it's over now. Now it's over, it's uncomfortable. Do you I'm want sorry. to go get
1: a donut? I do, actually, I really do. <laughs> review with Andy Daly playing who? Huh? You're, well, Forrest McNeil is the name of my character. Review
0: starring Andy Daly yes. playing Forrest McNeil. McNeil yes. is a guy who who <laughs> goes out and does things where he reviews <laughs> things in life. Yes. Of one to five. That's right. Give me give me some examples of what he reviews.
1: In the first episode, he reviews stealing. He just, you know, what's it like to go steal some things? And he gets into it. Mm-hmm. He, he discovers that he has a facility mm-hmm. for it. He reviews addiction. He goes ahead and gets addicted to cocaine just to review it on a scale of one to five stars. And then he reviews uh, going to the high school prom. All in one episode. All in one episode episode that's that's jam loaded. Packed. that's yeah. jam-packed it is it took me years to get addicted to cocaine you did it in less than 20 minutes did 20 it really take minutes. years no you were probably hooked from the first time you tried it
0: i think i enjoyed it <laughs> yeah but i didn't really commit to it till later okay yeah the first time i was like this is something i might want to ruin my life with but yeah. i'll wait till i'm in college right yeah when it really counts yeah exactly yeah well this sounds like a great show thank you and uh donut king has pretty good donuts yeah, that's what we learned, and you're have you're great. Everything's great with you. I think the billboard is going to be me, you, and Donut Friend. And no, it's going to be you with a poster, of, a Shepard fairy poster of me on your face. Yes, eating a Donut Friend donut.
1: I think that's perfect, and I think it'll sell all three of us beautifully. <laughs> yeah, look for that on Sunset Boulevard above the Pink Dot where I met <laughs> Axel Rose. <Nice laughs> and he might s- still be there. Nice to see you, Andy. Thank you so much. Wasn't that
0: pleasant, Andy Daly, who is very funny, and you can watch uh, a full episode of Review. Uh, right now on ComedyCentral.com. Boy, this has been some show already. A lot of things going on. Pushing buttons. Did you hear that part earlier? Okay, so let's talk to John Ronson about psychopaths and sociopaths and his journey through that. And also just other stuff. I like talking to, uh, to people from the UK. Feels exotic to me. I always, I always assume from the accent that they're uh, much more educated and sophisticated than I am. That That's a secret between us. All right, let's talk to John Ronson. You're right up on it.
2: Okay, that's good.
0: What do you do at the BBC? Don't they have these kind of microphones? This is what you do there? I guess. I guess so. Right? Can you hear yourself all right? Yeah, although
2: well, I'm not really doing anything at the BBC anymore. That, I well, stopped. I talk
0: to you on a radio show. I, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But then they, they kind of decommissioned that show about... Um, a year ago. What was that show? It was called John Ronson On. What happened was I was doing stuff for This American Life. Yeah. And they said to me, well, I I thought I'd I'd sort of offer This American Life without telling This American Life I was doing this, that I'd offer it to the BBC. It's such a great show. It should be on the BBC. Yeah. And so I went there and said to them, can I, you know, you should should take the show This American Life. It's fantastic. And they said, no, it's too American. Um, Why don't, You do a show, and I thought, well, I've got all these This American Life that they rejected because the kind of right the gate to their garden of acceptance is Mm -hmm. is very high indeed. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I know. Jesus, I had like thirty stories that I I pitched to This American Life that didn't want to. So as soon as thirty, pretty much, I gave up after like two. I just it was fortunate for me, you know,
0: I I you know that Ira took a liking to my show, but I've never been on there in, in a story
2: way. Uh, yeah, I still do. I mean, I still do stuff for them. I did something for them just like the other week. So you're in now. I am kind of in, I think. Good. I think I'm in. But there were some stories that, that, that they rejected, and so I, that's how I started doing my show on Radio for. And that you're st- it was an investigative
0: sort of show because I remember you at- talked to me about joke stealing.
2: Yeah. I talked you- to you about Carlos Mencia. Which, Specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it was kind of similar to <laughs> Smoking Life. We would take a theme yeah. and, and we'd do stuff around... The and why they why they let it go? Why would they stop it? Oh, I did like I did like thirty of them, and we were old and tired by the end of it.
0: Isn't that nice though? In some way, I think about uh, yeah. about the UK is that they know when something's done.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, because yeah.
0: I think there's less money involved in some weird way. Well, there was no fucking
2: money involved right. in my service. because,
0: like, yeah. even like here, like with TV, you know, there, there's an argument to be made that uh, something should be stopped fairly quickly. Uh, and, and maybe they could be appreciated more if they didn't drive themselves in the ground, but the but the profit margin is what matters,
2: yeah, so you yeah. just
0: have to deal with the redundancy of that kind of uh, commercialism:
2: It's true um, we did like i don't know we we did about seven series of genres, and that's kind of really that's unusually a lot That's like i don't know thirty episodes or something, and that's like way more than most people get. no, I think you're right. I think we're good at uh, at you know finishing things while they're still good.
0: Is it? But is that? Is it? Sometimes some people I've talked to, like Edgar Wright, it's somewhat of a choice sometimes to just stop, and other times it's just sort of the BBC saying like, "Eh, "Okay,
2: yeah, (laughs) well, someone else's turn." Yeah. Well, Edgar, Edgar stops spaced after what two series? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, just enough. Yeah, it was done. He was going to turn one of my books into a film. Which one? Them. Uh, my first what happened to that I thought that that's not
0: happening anymore no
2: it was like Mike White wrote a screenplay and and you wrote it yeah Mike wrote it and Edgar was was attached to to direct it. And so the screenplay
0: would have been you moving through the world of those people? No. The, uh, it cons- what were they? Conspiracy theorists and extremists of different kinds?
2: Yeah, in the screenplay, I think um, the, the conspiracy theories turned out to be true. and um, That would be Edgar's touch to the. Uh, well, actually, that was Mike White's idea. You know, one of the people in them was, is David Icke, yeah. who believes that, that the shadowy. Lizard elite, people. Yeah, lizard people. Mm-hmm. And my book kind of broke the lizard story. Um, for the world pretty much so it was kind of small Uh, I don't know people kind of knew it you know who knew it people uh, believed it yeah people believed it (laughs) I had this thing so basically okay so so this um, guy said to me Fenton Bailey producer said to me you've got to do David Arkin. he believes he's kind of nuts he believes that 12 foot lizard you know pedophile lizards secretly rule the world and I, I, I said, you know, that's just that's just too nuts. There's nothing yeah. to kind of hold on to there. Right. But then I was in the offices of the Anti-Defamation League, um, and uh, I picked up this Jewish newspaper, and it said, "David Icke believes that twelve-foot, blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, paedophile lizard secretly rule the world." He's evidently using code, and what he actually means is Jews. Uh- sure. I, I thought, well, I mean, I thought that's great because yeah. it's like, you but know, don't they usually just say Jews if they mean Jews? Well, I said to David, Ike uh, you know, he said, "No, I really mean." He said, "I really mean lizards." Yeah, and I said, "Well, that's you know." So I said that to the idea, and they said, "Oh, well, that's code too." So you kind of can't win.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> but yeah, so um, but I loved that. I thought that was like a sort of pressure cooker of craziness on both sides. As David, you know, as the, as the extremists get crazier, so our responses towards them. Um, so Mike White wrote a screenplay Oh, Mike White. Yeah. Yeah. In, in which that came true that the ruling elite really was 12 foot blood drinking lizards. Did you like the screenplay? Yeah. Loved it. They'd rip off their faces sure. and they would be like, listen, I thought it was yeah. great. Um, yeah. You know, just great in a kind of Mike White way.
0: Yeah. And Edgar, well, that's a little outside of the box for him, isn't it? It's yeah, uh, I guess so. uh, like sci-fi. He's sort of a, you know, toils of the human heart, dude.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is quite a long time ago. This is like, like 2001, I think.
0: Really? yeah well I read that I just finished the other book the new What's one the, the newest one the psychopath psychopaths, psychopath's test. test right you know it's really interesting so I, did, wait are you writing on this are you writing on me um <laughs> no you're not a psych. you're too no but I'm not to be a psych. right but I'm just saying in general like is this experience of you being here or something you're going to be writing about
2: how would you feel if I did fine I would be alright about it. well maybe I'm gonna see. I'm oh, like, I just didn't know if you were on assignment it, or
0: it, no we I, were gonna go at it with each other to figure out what your experience of this is, how you ex- uh, how how you experience this in your own words would be interesting. Well, I kind of think if
2: it goes badly, I mean, if it goes well, there'll be nothing to write about, right? Then I mean, you'll find
0: something. <laughs> there, there'll be a moment <laughs> where you could you know you know rip open and examine. Uh, and, I,
2: I've, I was a bit worried about doing this because because you know you're quite sort of intense presence. Am I? I think so. And and so I was a bit I was a little nervous about. It. But you're pretty intense, aren't you? Not in that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not in that way. Yes, yeah, so basically in the psychopath test you've got these psychiatrists you know, so sort of leading Harvard psychiatrists also say that you know that the ruling elite they look human but they're not quite human they actually- lack
0: human traits, psychological traits, Yeah. conscience, so
2: empathy. Yeah. Yeah, so they're psychopaths who pretend to be normal. They kind of hide their madness behind a veneer of normality, and all those people are, are kind of hailed as, as. And then David Icke says these people who rule the world—they look normal, but underneath they're not normal. They're 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 different. It's exactly the same theory, right? But with David Icke, it's lizards, and um, with the Harvard psychologists, it's psychopaths.
0: So psychopaths.
2: Yeah, and that's but, really interesting. But why? But, but what is it that you're gunning for? I mean, in the well, first of
0: all, let's let's start here. You're in Malibu. But you're not living in Britain anymore.
2: No, I've been living in New York for about a year and a half. Oh, and, like on a visa or are you in? Yeah, no visa, but I'm going to get a green card, I, I think. So you're living in New York uh-huh. and we're where what part of New York? In the Upper West Side. So you landed in the
0: Upper West Side.
2: Yeah. I do feel like I fell asleep in London and woke up the next morning I was living in New York. I've got it, no kind of rational.
0: It's not, it, oh, okay. Yeah. So, it, And how are you experiencing
2: it? That's all right. Um, it's, it's. What are you doing there? Just writing? Yeah, I'm exactly the same as I was doing in London, just with fewer friends. Yeah. I'm like a kind of. Um, <laughs> I feel like a kind of exiled monk. It means I'm writing a lot more. Cause but are you doing it mostly for British publication? Or are you like yeah, pretty much? I'm trying to write a new book, and I've, I'm writing. Some What's films. this book? I'm writing a book about people who've been publicly shamed. Uh huh. Um, I like. I'm interested in the fact that I think with each of my books, the people I'm sort of chronicling i'm looking into getting closer and closer to to us so like you know in me and you like yeah and and the people listen to this and the people on twitter i mean the way that we all you know gather together to routinely destroy people i'm really interested in that i think that's kind of mass but what,
0: where do you where does boundaries come into the conversation i mean how do we exist at, my my <laughs> current struggle with the whole thing is that you know uh there's issues of transparency and there's issues of accessibility, right? So how, you know, how do we, what do we protect anymore? You know, mm. what is ours? Mm. You know, and, and I mean, I guess you, also in some of your books, there's a, there's a facade of of, of of character, you uh, know, hiding something, but it becomes harder and harder, harder to hide anything.
2: Yeah. And the problem then is what happens when we all start to get um, defined, By our worst aspects Uh and that's what's happening on you know on the internet more and more I mean it happens in the mental health world and this is what the psychopath tests about I think is is how we you know how how more and more people are being defined by the aspects of their personality that would be described as mental disorders as
0: as having a Mm -hmm. clinical explanation
2: yeah exactly that
0: is not whatever the norm is which doesn't really exist yeah so I think the point like that that I read in the in the psychopath test was that we're all judged against this this as mad as you can be mm. there's degrees of it but it doesn't seem like culturally we like to hold on to any real gray area that we can't accept yeah that like everybody has uh, elements of borderline narcissism psychopathology all that stuff we all have those things mm. and if you're a person that's seeking definition for yourself and want to frighten yourself you can go categorize yourself but i i think that you're talking about uh, control and, and and people needing some sort of you know easy way to uh, say like well you're that and I can do what I will with that information.
2: Yeah, and as journalists, what we do is we travel around the world with our notepads in our hands and we look and we wait for the gems. Mm-hmm. And the gems are always the most outermost aspects of that person's compelling. Personality. compelling. Well, it's like your Carlos Mencia. I mean, you know, most of your shows that are most popular are the ones where people kind of fall apart. Yeah, but I didn't expect
0: that. I was not gunning for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're running around, you know, pushing people's buttons
2: on purpose. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to, hu- to de-demonize the demons. I'm trying to humanize people. You're poking around in their soft spots. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is find a good balance between <laughs> between not humiliating people, but looking into these kind of darker, shadowy aspects of well, of our of our a- personalities. I and guess. I and
0: I appreciate the, the the approach of of the I guess what would be called the the Gonzo approach of of offering up enough of yourself as uh yeah. as a point of reference to 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 have the reader judge against uh, you know your own struggle yeah. and your own journey into uh understanding this stuff
2: yeah which is why actually I, I always thought I was the most appropriate person to write about psychopaths because I'm like the 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 opposite of a, I'm the kind of neurological opposite of a psychopath and that my amygdala like massively overperforms and I'm sort of constantly getting these kind of anxieties but what do you think about that whole business is
0: that if you can psychopathologize everything to a, a chemical transaction I mean what are we really worth anyway
2: yeah well I, I remember saying to some psychopath spotters at a course that I went on. You know, if it's if the it's Bob like, Hair thing, yeah, Robert Hare's thing. I, I said, you know, okay, if it's all just neurological, if it's underperforming amygdala, you know, you should feel sorry for them, right? And he said, well, why should we feel sorry for them? They don't give a fuck about us. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it. conditional empathy. Yeah, you are but exactly all the, all the things that kind of keep us morally good, um, the 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 empathy and the, you know the guilt and the remorse. These are all kind of painful feelings right, right. It's the amygdala kind of shooting these signals right. down. so psychopaths don't have that so psychopathy has to be the most pleasant feeling of all the mental disorders right they walk around and which is why so few of them want to be kind of cured because it's, it's a great feeling to have no remorse and no guilt it's just they just walk around fine right but but the
0: fact is is that once they become aware of it that the the the, the manip- manipulative element of it is that they can um they can sort of uh act that stuff mm. if necessary yeah. to get what they want. Well, it's the same with manics. I got manics in my life. I got bipolar people. They don't want to be medicated mm. because like they're just waiting for that next run. Right. You know the ecstatic feeling of that. Yeah. But what did you come away with all that after talking to all those people and going on this journey for yourself, you know, and waffling in between judging yourself by the the psychopath checklist and talking with uh, with real psychopaths. I mean, what was the feeling at the end in terms of your own ability to empathize or, or put them into context?
2: Well, I, I came away with, with the strong sense that we have this weird desire to judge people by their madnesses, by their maddest edges, and that is creating a more kind of conformist, conservative society. So, psychopaths definitely exist. You know, I'm no kind of Adilang. Person, you know, psychopaths definitely exist. However, there's this kind of massive need in all these different aspects of society, from journalism through to the pharmaceutical industry, through to psychiatry and psychology, which where all these different groups have vested interests to define people by their madnesses. And I think we do that. And the, the reason why I want to write this new book about public shaming is because I think we we all do it routinely too. We somebody fucks up slightly on the internet, and right. they become that thing for the rest of their lives. Okay, like,
0: well, that, well, that's interesting. Um, in, in, but uh, like with 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 the pharmaceutical industry, the psychiatric industry, and with uh, the media, you know, the they're 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 predatory and desperate. Uh, to exploit in order to you know increase their profit margin mm. but it, it, but personally uh, it's 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 a different thing yeah that you know I, I I think that we we like to have the ability to sum people up so we know how to engage with them that there's a tremendous risk like I I think that what I do here mm. for us to sit down and have a, a free-form conversation is something that you know people I think used to enjoy doing perhaps You know, spin the yarn, you know, get at some stuff, have a discussion, Mm. uh, you know, and take some emotional risks along the way. But I think now, because of the pace of culture and the pace of society, that seems to be a burden. So it's a lot easier to go like, well, that guy's fucked up Mm. or that guy's got that problem. Yeah. Yeah, He's that without experiencing the nuance because there's too much... Going on, you know, in order to just even make a relationship with somebody, it's taxing because our brains have changed. We don't have that kind of time anymore.
2: Yeah, you're right, and this is why what you do, and in fact, the rise of the whole podcast culture is is a really great thing. These long form conversations.
0: But what do we do? Like, what do you tell me about this shaming thing? So, what? Because what, in my mind. Well, what's happening, and I also think what what is happening in in media culture outside of psychiatric uh, profiteering and pharma- pharmaceutical profiteering is that there's juice there. It's 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 titillating. That it's it's more you know satisfying. Yeah, but it also implies a distance, like with the internet and with with shaming. That you know you don't look at people as people. Yeah. And and the titillation of like oh that person did that that's fu-. you know, there's a rush
2: yeah there is a rush and so what are we getting from that uh, there's a woman actually I met in the psychopath test who was a who was a talent booker for daytime I know that
0: was great yeah and you know, I thought how she became cynical was interesting yeah
2: yeah she would ask them what medication they were on right and that was her way of trying to work out who was the she was looking for like the right sort of madness because if it was like lithium. She said, "That's guys, whoa, you know." And right. I could have them on our show. You don't want them to go on the show and then go off and kill themselves. But if it was a medication that implied a kind of fun-sounding mental illness like Prozac, right? Uh, she would have them on the show. And I guess the idea is that we want to we're worried that we're getting crazy. And so we want to watch these people who are a bit crazier than we are, which will make us, it'll entertain us and it'll make us feel better about ourselves for not being as out of control as we worried that we might be, but they're not so crazy that we feel like we're being exploitative by watching them. So it's the right sort of madness for entertainment for television is madness is people who we feel are just a little bit crazier than we are.
0: I guess I sometimes feel like, you know, if I watch hoarders, Mm. Or I watch um, uh, Intervention. That you
2: empathize more, right? Right. Yeah, I agree. Hoarding is really interesting. It's a different thing. With hoarding, we we watch for a different reason. We watch because we are worried that that's what we are turning into
0: also there is there you know more so on that show like you know you know being a sober person myself when i watch intervention mm-hmm. the arc of someone's struggle and decision to try to uh, to change your life is is satisfying yeah uh you know i know the odds are against people but you know at least they they find that window to uh, to try yeah but with hoarding you never end one of those shows thinking like that ah, things are gonna be okay over
2: there yeah never it's funny thing hoarding because I, I think that the, the look around me look i'm close you're getting, close. you're getting. Close. But I want it gone. It's just yeah. a, to me,
0: it's a matter of laziness. I, I, I have some things there. Well, well, what's your take on
2: it? On holding? Yeah. Um, I think. Okay, I think the TV producers have a different agenda to, to we have as viewers. I think the TV producers love it because it's just about the most visually startling of all the mental disorders. You're just waiting for the bag of poop or the dead cat. Yeah, they want the maggots. Yeah. They want the kind of mountain rain, you know, the kind of yeah. mountains of you know, Yeah, They kind of love that stuff. Whereas we watch it because we're worried. Yeah. We think that's us. So why then are we all suddenly... Because, I mean, holding, it's like... Um, in fact, I, it feels like the Mormon Church of Mental Disorders in that it's incredibly fast-growing and nobody quite understands why. And my feeling is that it's not simple to say it's just, it's just like we're kind of fucked up by consumerism because actually the big difference between people who are like massively into consumerism and, and hoarders is that hoarders want to sort of keep themselves... They don't want people seeing their They're
0: stuff. They're building a fortress.
2: Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a word for it. Like You know, if, you know, hoarders have got this little room where they kind of sit in amid all their stuff, where they kind of do their, their bills. Yeah. It's called the cockpit. So yeah. it's like hoarding intervention experts call it the cockpit. Oh, really? Yeah. And you can see that light. It's like yeah. a cocoon. Sure. You're, you're inside the, the womb of it. Sure.
0: But yeah. it's also like, it, it, to me, it's sort of a, a reaction to powerlessness mm-hmm. that, y- you know, you invest all this meaning... To random things that just keep stacking up, and when it comes right down to it, you know, when it's sort of like something you never, you haven't seen in years, you're like, oh no, I was gonna, like, they're they're, it's it's an empire of emotional insulation. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, unlike a lot of anxiety disorders, it's a disease of moral goodness. Same no. as OCD, right? I mean, hoarders want to, um, they want to do it because you know when you look at what it is that people hoard quite often, it's quite often things that make you a sort of good mainstream moral person. It's like Martha Stewart type stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of Martha Stewart hoarding going Mm on. Um, So it's all about trying to, you know, you're trying desperately to kind of be this functional person, the kind of, you know, I remember meeting um, a hoarder who, it, it was all to do with dinner parties, but she had so much shit in her house that there's no room for a dinner party.
0: But she didn't seem, She didn't see herself as a hoarder. Why? No, they? no,
2: she did. She did, and she could see that it's like out of control. So you buy all this kind of crockery because you're going to do the best dinner party ever. You can yeah. never have a fucking dinner party, right? Because there's no there's no space anymore. It's a manifestation of some sort of psychological um, malignancy
0: of of unmet expectation. Yeah. you know, it's like cancer. You know, it starts with one thing and then like the ideas get bigger. It's like well I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that and this is gonna be part of this and I need to have this for when I wanna do that and then you just all of a sudden, you know, it just becomes a complete you know physical manifestation of a mental disease
2: yeah and exactly and it's a disease of moral goodness and it's totally Well, so how is OCD
0: a disease of moral goodness oh i
2: think OCD is totally a disease of moral goodness well, i'm
0: try- i guess maybe i'm trying having a hard time wrapping my brain around the idea
2: of moral goodness that there there's, there's good intention behind it and it's all about being a good person you don't okay, so a classic O C D thing. You mean organization? No, no. Like being a kind of moral person. Like like if you if you live in the Bible belt of yeah. America, quite often your O C D will manifest itself that you're convinced that Satan lives inside you. You're a bad person. Um it's like the opposite of a psychopath. It's like you, I could throw this baby out of the window. Now a psychopath would think I could throw this baby out of the window. And like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Somebody with OCD could think, I could throw this baby out the window. Fuck, that means I must be a terrible person. I've just had that thought. And that thought gets lodged in your brain. And, and you know, that's because di- everybody has these intrusive thoughts, right? Yeah. I could pick up this baby and throw it out the window. But with OCD, it's like the thought, you're such a good person. How could I think that? Yeah, how could I think that? And then, fuck, I, you know, yeah. it's all swooping damn around d- in d- head. Damn you, Satan. Yeah, exactly. What's really interesting I think is that in like the Bible Belt of America, it's like oh my god, I've just had this terrible thought. I must be I must be satanic. I must be I must have this living. In like liberal London, it's like oh my god, I just had this terrible thought. I must be a racist.
0: Yeah, right, right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the battle with Satan,
0: I think that when it comes down to, you know, all your investigations is that, you know, how people make sense of the world and the existential struggle. To exist within it and justify one's actions through rationalization or beliefs uh, is is vast. Mm. Yeah, and and that you know to really sort of assess it, like the fascination with conspiracy theories. You know, I've been that guy. Mm. That you know that you know what it really is is a revisionist organization of events. You know, put into a context either by you or somebody else that gives you some sense of of control and some you know uh, illusion of secret information Mm -hmm. uh power yeah and you know it's it's very but usually if if you do some rational research into most of it uh, either the conspiracy is plain to see and they're not hiding or it's just bullshit Mm -hmm. but it becomes a belief system not unlike uh organized religion that I, i i have found that you know people who believe in the in the tower seven in the in the, the the 9-11 truth that that belief system has tenets and and dogma and and uh you know moral principles uh not unlike uh, christianity that you know the belief that you have to suspend in order to 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 absorb it and live it mm-hmm. is is religious
2: yeah except i mean yeah i, I totally agree with you uh except it, it, they become very especially with the nine eleven truth is i think they become very kind of dehumanizing um for me, it, it stopped being funny with nine with the nine eleven truthers because you know they didn't give a fuck about the victims, and they would stalk the victims. Yeah, yeah. I got this friend who was uh, who was on um, one of the trains on in, on July seventh in London. You know, we had this. Test you wrote day. about that. Yeah, yeah. And did, did
0: that make the final copy of the book? I think I read it. Uh, yeah, I know it did. It yeah, did. Yeah.
2: and she. Um, so she was. She survived this terrorist attack in London. And then one day was was looking herself up on Google, and all these people were di- were discussing her, and they were discussing that she didn't exist because she'd become like a spokesperson for the uh, right.
0: She was part of a conspiracy that the bombs weren't real, and yeah. that they were under they were done by the government, uh, or the or, yeah. or the the story was put forth by the government because of the power they, surge. Yeah, but, but but why would the government go out of the way to to hide that? Just to, you, you, the accidents yeah. happen all the time. Yeah. Yeah, but they would create this convoluted, uh, you know, conspiracy to hide a power surge that, w- that caused
2: an accident. <laughs> yeah, an accidental power surge on the London Underground. Um, but then they had
0: to accommodate the
2: the, 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 the bus, bus bombing. That was all actors. stuntman. Uh, it was yeah, stuntman. I mean, I'm innocent. It was sub- it was subterfuge to make the 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 other
0: terrorist story more credible. <laughs> right, right. Because of an accidental power. What surge. the fuck did you find? Where, where does that? Why do these people do this? To be a true psychopath, to have certain qualities of of you know uh, you know discipline, boundaries, you know even sort of relatively um, uh, ambitious aggression that isn't harmful. You know that doesn't mean you're clinically a psychopath. But what about these? What do you? What did you find from talking to uh, that? The story about the guy in the in the in the psychopath test who was one of these the M, the M fifteen dude. Yeah, the spy
2: David Shayler.
0: That the, the arc of that
2: guy's story. That was amazing, right? Okay, so he, he um yeah, he was an MI five spy and then he became a whistleblower that I think the British were trying to kill Gaddafi. I think yeah. that was the thing. And then he was like a, he, he went on the run and he ended up going to prison and then he came out as a as a nine eleven truther. And then it's a July seventh truther. So this is where he kind of inter intersects with my friend Rachel, who's like on the train, bomb goes off. 20 people are killed in her carriage body parts everywhere the survivors um, form a kind of group you know they just meet in pubs and start uh, uh, just chatting and she becomes like a spokesperson for the survivors and then David Shaler who is now uh, convinced that it was holograms that flew into the twin towers and the 7-7 train was just a, you know accidental power surge becomes convinced that Rachel doesn't exist right because um, she's a team of MI5 agents right. tasked to spread disinformation. Yeah. So Rachel did what I, well, I think you and I would do, which is like email them and say, actually, I do exist. And it's not nice uh, to read this about yourself, especially when you've just been blown up on the tube, which they took as all the more evidence that she didn't exist. Right. Um, and then finally she met them. And um, they, they ended up yelling at each other and he accused her of being mentally ill. And
0: that's where that's where everything fell apart.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But then he goes on to think he's a messiah and he's a, a crossdresser and has clearly other problems.
2: Yeah. All of that happened uh, afterwards. But he, That was his next move. Is that like, I'm Jesus? Yeah. I'm Jesus. And then he became a, a crossdresser, called himself Dolores, I think.
0: And at that point, he's got no credibility. And you, and you talked yeah. about that, that there was a breaking the, point.
2: Yeah, the right and the wrong sort of madness. When he believed that holograms flew into the Twin Towers, he was on TV like, everywhere. But as soon as he started saying he was Jesus, it was like, mm, yeah. Not as interesting. Too crazy. It's But it also hackneyed. Uh, hackneyed, plus it doesn't do anything for us. Yeah. It's just, it's too... In fact, we feel bad talking about it because it, suddenly it's no longer... Smoke and mirrors exploitation, which is the kind of exploitation that makes us happy. Yeah. It's real exploitation. Right,
0: because he's got problems.
2: Yeah, exactly. And if
0: you're Jesus, do a trick. Yeah. If you got no tricks, there's a very funny exchange between the woman who used to be his landlady and him saying that, you know, you've already blown it. <laughs> yeah, You're not doing the Messiah thing right.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you
0: shouldn't, uh, like, if you're a real Messiah, people would gravitate towards you. You shouldn't be out here pitching yourself. Right. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah. But why, but why do people like you and me... Like, you know, when I read the, like, when I see the 9-11 truth stuff, or even the hologram thing, even that, the, mm-hmm. the reason that that was compelling was because there is this sense that there are forces outside of us that are within human control, that uh, we have no idea what the range of possibilities are within those, they're clandestine, mm-hmm. and, uh, but what part of us, you know, wants, has that moment where you're like, well, I don't know, you know, it's, maybe, maybe that, that's true.
2: Why? Maybe it's true that... There were (laughs) holograms. Okay, there's there's definitely a kind of Miss Marple thing going on, right? I mean, one of the most compelling conspiracy theories is things like chemtrails, which is really fucking easy. All you have to do is look up and you see it in the sky. So in the sky, there's evidence. Um, On YouTube, of course. You know, you don't have to... Do any legwork anymore to become to be like an investigator? You just have to go onto YouTube and watch Alex Jones videos, um, and then it's like, okay, I've got my information from this person. So it's a kind of lazy form of investigative journalism for a start. So you've got so you want to see some sort of physical evidence of the grand conspiracy, um, but you don't actually get on any planes and do any work, right? I mean, when we were doing them and and. Uh, the serious secret rulers of the world. You know, we were on planes all the time, sneaking into the Bilderberg Group, sneaking into Bohemian Grove. You know, we were kind of doing all of this stuff. But to be a conspiracy theorist he says you don't actually have to do any of that stuff. Uh, you just, you have, just to, have to
0: buy someone else's framing of the situation.
2: Yeah. And then why? What do we get out of it? I mean, you know, what people say is, oh, you know, the world, people don't want to think, oh, how uncontrollable the world is. We want to kind of give, um, we want to give uh, patterns to, to an unpatternable world right it sometimes i wonder you want something to blame
0: or something to explain something that seems like uh, that is incomprehensible because the truth is not as interesting
2: or possibly more frightening right that uh, um that nobody controls anything and it's just fucking it's just chaos things happen yeah but of course there are conspiracies i mean this is the the Counter side of it. Well, that's the the way that the ruling elites, which they exist, have always
0: controlled things is through, you know, relatively secret societies, but not that secret. How people are trained, uh, you know, at the upper levels of 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 money mm. and and power. Uh, there, there are initiations. There is a way of life that is maintained. There is training. Uh, you know, Ivy League schools were training camps for those people. Yeah. There is access that is only allowed to a people of certain class and certain blood and certain family.
2: I mean, it's it's not a mystery. It's not it's not in hiding. Yeah. And uh, the Bilderberg Group really does exist. I mean, when I was trying to get into the Bilderberg Group, people actually thought it didn't exist because yeah. the only people who, who were speaking about it were like, at the time either far right. Or far left yeah. people, it sounded so much like the Illuminati. People thought, "Oh, this group doesn't even exist." And the next thing I know, I'm being chased by their secret service men, like through the streets of Portugal. So, and by the way, I completely, as soon as I started getting chased by the Bilderberg Group, I completely weren't native straight away and became as paranoid as. Anybody. For how long? Kind of a, well, nothing happened. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't killed, so it kind of, it, I was probably for about a month.
0: But how is the Bilderberg group different than the G4 conference or different than the Bohemian Grove meetings? I mean, yeah. how is it, you know, is it just a group of, of of people at a certain class that are trying to have a discussion about, you know, how things are
2: going with running the world? Yeah, I think it's got a slightly different agenda too. What about the Trilateral Commission? Yeah, I never tried to sneak into them, but I did get into Bohemian Grove and- That's got... just a stupid party of rich people. Yeah. It's, it's nothing. <laughs> It's where they go
0: and they they dress in an owl, right? They dress in drag and they put on shows and they do comedies and they eat dinner and they 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 laugh at uh, look at look at look at powerful people can have fun in the woods too.
2: Yeah, right. It was funny because I snuck into Beaming Grove with Alex Jones Uh and he, because he was convinced that the owl was a symbol of Moloch, the devil god. So the fact that there was like owls everywhere was like evidence that this was like actual devil worship the actual reason why there's owls everywhere giant owl sculpture is because it's in the middle of the redwoods and there's like owls there's owls everywhere it's like an owl sanctuary Um, so it's really funny they're seeing Alex in there because Alex had to dress preppy to like sneak in did you like hanging out with Alex? no he's uh, no he's kind of intense and it was a good night though yeah uh, should i backtrack to kind yeah. of explain the situation of sure how we ended up getting there um so i'd heard about this place bohemian grove yeah everyone's heard you said. i that. don't know if
0: everyone's heard about it. this is like you know this is sort of deep conspiracy stuff on some level you know people who are interested in 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 secret societies will have heard of it you know at the time when i was more interested in it i had heard of it yeah. uh but it's a, it's a secret meeting once a year in the woods of california of the ruling elites and their guests and and it's uh it's closed off.
2: And on the Saturday night the, the room is always well I mean there's there's prostitution, there's all this kind of shit going on, but but um on the Saturday night they all dress up in robes and they have a ritual that culminates in a human effigy being thrown into the fiery belly of a fifty foot stone owl. Mm-hmm. Um so I thought that can't be true. Yeah. Uh so I, I decided to try and sneak in and find out if it was true. And I didn't want to go on my own. Um, so I phoned up David Ike, and I said, do you want to come into? He's oh, that's where they transform themselves back into giant lizards. You know, people vanish in those forests.
0: So that's where the wizard people meet.
2: Yeah, that's where the lizard people meet. So he meet. wasn't going to go. No. So I phoned up Alex Cause Jones. Because they were on
0: to him. Yeah. Of course.
2: And people, you know, mm-hmm. people get sacrificed. Sure, Yeah. sure. So um, I phoned up Alex Jones. Who I'd met actually i was I went to the rebuilding of David Koresh's church at Waco, and Alex Jones had like funded the rebuilding of david Koresh's church, and it seemed quite kind of fearless and gung ho how
0: How's that church doing
2: uh I think it's they are doing all right
0: yeah they, and, and they are still the branch divinians apparently this was a while
2: ago uh-huh. when I went there, but uh, yeah this i mean there weren't that many left, but those that were left I think sort of just moved back into the church. Hmm. I remember a bumper sticker saying. You burn it, we build it. Yeah, <laughs> um, and Randy Weaver was there, who uh-huh. I got to know quite well from the uh, from the shootout. Yeah, yeah, Ruby Ridge. Yeah, in fact, I went with Randy Weaver, and we met Alex Jones there. And uh,
0: what do you think defines those people? What was your experience of them? What way? You know, what is their what is their sense of what does freedom look like for them in a real sense?
2: I remember Alex Jones calling a guy over and saying, "Show this English guy what freedom looks like." And the guy opened up his jacket, and there was a gun in there. So that's what freedom looks like—a <laughs> <Looks> like <laughs> big gun. <laughs> and, and what do you make of that? What do you, um, what do you make? I, I'm fucking nuts! I mean, I, yeah, I'm an Englishman. It's, just, it, it's, I mean, I have no conception of why the Americans want to have guns. It just seems like crazy. I, I don't understand why you want to have guns, and I don't understand why you don't have free healthcare. Yeah, it's like those are the things that fuck everything up. Um, so it's just a mystery to me.
0: But those people that have guns are against free health care. Yes. On principle, because they think that, you know, we should have the choice to die without treatment. Yeah.
2: And, uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> I know, nuts. So anyways, so I went into Beeman Grove with Alex Jones. I, 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 ph- I phoned him up and I said, I'm thinking about doing this. And he goes, I'll, I'll come in, I'll, I'll um, I'm going to come in and I'm going to sneak a camera in and I'm going to get a camera right in their faces and I'm going to confront these devil worshippers going about their wickedness. So I said, I think, um... I think stealth would be a better approach. Yeah. I said, okay, stealth. Yeah. So we went in there, so we dressed preppy. Yeah. This is my favourite part of the night. How did you get in, though? How did you have tickets? Well, we we this, this is going back, like, 15 years. Um, so we met a guy in the town who'd, who'd himself infiltrated the grove. And he said, you just dressed preppy. Just walk up the drive. Because Alex had this plan that he'd, like, climb... He'd, like, sail along the river and then get out and then... <laughs> and then climb up the mountain and then go down the other side and get in that way and then this guy this lawyer in the town who'd like snuck into the grove a few times said no no if you're going that way you're going to get yourself killed and Alex got because of the
0: terrain not because yeah yeah because
2: of the terrain so Alex wrote down on his notepad going in that way dash killed (laughs) (laughs) Uh, he said all you need to do is like um, go to Eddie Bauer go and get yourself some preppy preppy clothes and he just walked in. Yeah. So, so, but Alex was practicing, like in the uh, run-up to the infiltration. Yeah, I was just like walking up and down this hotel corridor, practicing being preppy, you know, in case he was like, you know, confronted. Which, and Alex's version of being preppy. You know, he, he like, went into this... We used to have this show called Mr. Ben in England, this TV yeah. kids show, where, like, Mr. Ben would walk into the dressing room at the costume store, you know, like a businessman and would come out looking like, I don't know, a cowboy or an Indian or something. And Alex went into Eddie Bauer looking like a kind of far-right-wing nut Texan <laughs> redneck and came out looking like, you know, Jay Gatsby, you know, with <laughs> with the tennis racket. In fact, yeah. everything but the tennis racket. Um, so then he was walking up and down the corridor, like, practising, being preppy, but having these sort of slightly effeminate... <laughs> <laughs> conversations about microprocessors. <laughs> like, you know, and I said, have you, have you got anything to say? Uh, like, if you get caught, have you got, you know, if they like confront you, have you got something to say? And he said, yeah, I've worked out what I'm going to say. <laughs> I said, what are you going to say? He said, I'm going to say, don't come any closer. <laughs> I said, that's not preppy, Alex. <laughs> that's a threat. <laughs> he said, but, yeah, yeah.
0: but don't you think that he's uh, I, I, I have a hard time knowing whether or not he believes his bullshit or not.
2: Yeah. You know, So we went into the grove and witnessed the owl ritual, which was just as you described it earlier, just kind of stupid, grown up skull and bones, frat bollocks. I mean, you know, weird that, you know, George Bush would want to spend his summer holiday doing that, but not evidence of actual, you know, satanic um, activity. But Alex came out of it convinced. Well, made a video that this was—you know this could have been an actual child sacrifice that we witnessed, and so I so totally spun it out of control. And I said to him, Alex, I think this is kind of—it's kind of irresponsible of you to to do this. You know, I mean, you saw what I saw—that this was this was kind of stupid and intense and weird, but it wasn't satanic. And he and he said to me, you know, you know, you know what my people want to hear, basically. <laughs> yeah, like, i got a show to do. Yeah, i got a show to <laughs> do. <laughs> so I think Alex, I mean, obviously Alex believes this stuff a bit, but he is a showman. Yeah. Um, so why do they do it? I mean, sometimes I think there's like this kind of weird pattern thing going on in their brain that they just have to, they feel this kind of real need to to form patterns for everything to make sense. Right. Um, right. And then their political stuff comes into it, which means everything has to make sense in this kind of evil globalist way. You know, I had a sort of epiphany coming out of Beaming Grove actually, which was that Alex took it really seriously. Yeah. And all the all the men of wealth and power, all these kind of Mr. Burns and The Simpsons, were taking it really seriously as well in their own way. You know, it wasn't like fun and games to them. It's like it, it it seemed to be some sort of Thing to to make them feel like an elite. To with well, the tradition,
0: kind of... it's a ritual of tradition. It's like yeah. a, it's like hazing or anything else. It's a secret handshake shit.
2: Yeah, and I thought the only sane person in the entire Redwood Forest, seeing that this was just stupid, was was me. I was I was like the only person who like thought this is fucking nuts. You know. But it's uh, just a reaffirmation of the brotherhood of power, mm. right? Which is the same as Skull and Bones. It's weird that they need that. They need that thing. They need those rituals. To actually make them feel like they are special enough to carve up the world, right? I tried to sneak into the skull and bones. Actually, before I ended up doing the Men's Day at goats we were like desperately flailing around looking for stories to do, and one of them was trying to get into Skull and Bones Club to try and at Yale, yeah. But then I realized I was like a grown man trying to,
0: yeah, they're you know, gonna, like kids, they're you know, kids, know, yeah. and, and they're and I'm sure that they're they're uh, they're sort of like approach at this point is sort of passive, mm. and that, you know, like, if if Geronimo's skull is there, it's like, oh, you want to see something weird, right? <laughs> yeah. This is real skull. I tried yeah, to I mean, prove
2: that as well. Yeah. That Bush, see, it was Bush's grandfather grave robbed Geronimo's grave. Yeah. This is good. This is like kind of, you know, like on iTunes when it's like, you know, like the third, like the, what do they call it? When it's like the... uh you know, if you like these songs by the full, <laughs> listen to these like ones that no one's ever heard of. Right. It's like, know, do you know, you know Andronimo skull? skull? So said, I'm impressed that you really do know your conspiracy shit. I, thought <laughs> I was like the only person who knew that the theory that Bush's grandfather had stolen. Yeah, Andronimo's you know, I've been down skull. that
0: rabbit hole. Everybody's <laughs> everybody's looking for meaning.
2: Right, but, but, but yeah, but what compels you? I mean, where'd you grow up?
0: Uh, Cardiff. And that's in Wales.
2: Yes, yeah, the capital of Wales.
0: And wh- how did you grow up? What's what is your?
2: Uh, it was uh, just a sort of you know regular kind of suburban. Um... It's funny, you know, the other day I was at a spa and the therapist. I, w- I said to the therapist, "I I can't remember anything about my childhood because like when you describe that, I've got it's kind of vague impression yeah. of what my. I said, uh, I said I can't remember anything about my childhood. I just, it's all gone. And and she said to me, well, you know, most people who don't remember anything about their childhood, it means that they were sexually abused by their parents. And I said, I'd remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember that much. I sort of, I remember, I was like, I grew up in this kind of, you know, suburban house in Cardiff and I went to the local high school, Cardiff High School, and had a kind of rough time of it. Why? Um... I, just, I was like, you know, I was, I was an awkward, quiet, fat kid. I was the, I was a i was, I was fat, and I'd just stand there in silence, <laughs> basically, for like the first sixteen f- or it, seventeen years of my life.
0: The fat thing is, uh, is a bit harsh. Yeah, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, and and you were made fun of.
2: Yeah, actually, I, I was thrown in a lake once.
0: For being fat?
2: Yeah. What? what? Yeah, they threw me in a lake. Uh, And then years later, I woke up like about five years ago, I realized I was still angry about it. And so I found one of them on the internet and emailed to tell him that I'm now a best-selling author. (laughs) And he... Did he say, are you still fat? (laughs) No, no. He he emailed me back and said that the reason why they threw me in the lake. Was because I was a pain in the ass, and the tenor of my email leads him to suspect that I hadn't changed. Oh, you, you <laughs> oh, blew yeah. it! I think I fucked it up. <laughs>
0: you walked right into it.
2: Yeah, it turns out I was thinking, Well, I'm, yeah, you know, I must be doing better than you. And I looked him up, and it turns out it's because I'm fucking plain. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I shouldn't No have closure there. No, no, You're no, gonna have no, to
0: process that anger uh, no. on your own. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and you so, and, and you what? What did your dad do? Uh, he was a wholesaler. Um, like he, he owned a warehouse. Yeah, yeah. Importing and exporting things like cutlery. And you grew up Jewish. Grew up Jewish. Your uh, mom's Jewish from Liverpool. Yeah,
0: yeah, I don't know why I'm constantly fascinated by the uh, the reality of uh, British Jews. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Card- yeah, I'm ridiculous. Cardiff had a we had, you know, we
2: had kind of a big Jewish community really? in Cardiff.
0: Yeah, pretty big. I, I don't know what, you know, people get mad at me for like enough with the Jew shit, you know, but it's like, it's fascinating Well, I mean,
2: it's fascinating to me. It is? Yeah. Do you hold on to it? No, fuck. No, the last time I we went to synagogue was the day of my bar mitzvah. Yeah? We never went back. Really? Yeah, because it's fucking nuts. The whole thing's nuts. <laughs> it's like, you know, they, people hit themselves yeah. and the men and women have to sit separately. What'd you grow? You grew up Orthodox? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's different. Yeah. Oh, no, my God.
2: Well, I mean, I said I grew up Orthodox. It was it was an Orthodox synagogue that I right. we went to, but there was nothing particularly. We had a car crash when I was 10, and my dad made us go to synagogue. Uh, it's like if we've not been punished once with the fucking car crash, we, I now have to go to synagogue every week because we didn't die. Because
0: you didn't die. Yeah. And he thought it's time to get straight with God.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like I was punished twice. First we have the fucking car crash, and I have to go to synagogue every week. <laughs> <laughs> so that happened for a while
0: but you know in, in the books you, you sort of write about this sort of anxiety thing mm. do you find that the the reason what was the moment where you decided like I'm going to you know I'm going to be a journalist what was the intent
2: Um, I were think you
0: trying that, to feel better
2: yeah I think um, I, I sometimes wonder whether I mean you know if it is connected to me having a bad childhood whether it's to go and meet frightening people and then sort of de-demonise them in my mind, you know, to try and understand. I do think, uh, you know, I do think actually that having a kind of shit childhood is is exactly the kind of thing a journalist should have because we should be mistrustful. We should feel like outsiders, mistrustful of power. Mm -hmm. And what better way to feel that than to be kind of shoved to the edge of the playground at school. Yeah. So I do think it was a good thing. I think being bullied is what a journalist should should have had happen to them as a child. Because
0: you don't do uh, you're not politically motivated.
2: No, it's people. I'm interested in why we behave the way that we do. Yeah, I mean, that's like all my stories. You know why why do we behave in the kind of absurd, ridiculous ways that we do as, as human beings? I mean, quite often it is to do with power, um, because it's why you know, why do we fuck up other people so much? Which is why I'm interested in public shaming, actually, because, like, you know, when we all get together to shame someone like Justine Sacco on the plane the other week, you know, on the, you know that story. Which one? She was this woman. She was, in, she, was in, she was about to get on a plane. I'm going to South Africa. I uh, hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, no, I won't because I'm white. And then she obviously, like chuckled to herself, turned off the phone and got on the plane and by the time she'd landed it was like fucking, did Did she miss all of this?
0: Yeah. Is she a public personality?
2: No, no, she's a PR woman huh. and destroyed. And part of the reason why she was destroyed was because there was a kind of real glee at we're destroying her and she doesn't even fucking know it because she's on a plane.
0: Yeah, that's a new thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh. How quickly it can happen.
2: Yeah, by, by the time she got off the plane she was, she, she was just destroyed. Um, so... You know, I think my book about public shaming is also about power because it's about the intense power that we all have when we get together to destroy someone. But
0: also, took you know, the the potential of it happening so quickly and so virally Uh, and on such a a massive scale is probably less than a decade old, really.
2: Yeah, I know. It's amazing.
0: What are you finding when you talk to people who have been public shamed?
2: There's kind of, you know, that it's like the worst pain in the world. One of them said it was worse than being... Very badly beaten up by his father. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. hmm so, Yeah. What's their recourse? For many of them, there's like no recourse, right? Yeah. You say it. you fuck fucked forever. Yeah. I'm interested in the people who get trapped in it, trapped in that moment. Like, I presume like Michael Richards. So I haven't met. Have you met Michael Richards? No. Okay. Are you going to talk to him? No, he wouldn't talk to me. No? No. It's just, I think it's too haunting for him. And it was years ago.
0: Wasn't that long ago? Actually,
2: it wasn't that long ago?
0: Well, I mean, comics that I've talked to have sort of framed it as a, a a failed attempt at something.
2: Yeah, yeah. Do you worry about it? Do you do you sort of think? Have I just, you know, do you worry that you're going to lie, tweet the wrong thing, and then your life will be over? Does it? Do these thoughts cross your mind?
0: Um, not so much that one. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I kind of compulsively tweet stuff, and you know, I kind of, I, I, you know, I kind, I, I think about it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not one to make you know racial jokes or you know or or, or be you know in you know, I've been insensitive and I've and I've I've sort of answered to it. Mm. Uh, but usually they're they're oversights and perhaps things that I haven't thought through. Yeah. Um but uh, I think that you you know how do you you my fear is, is character assassination. Huh. Because that, you know, like you're saying is that If somebody puts something out in the world and people choose to believe that, no matter how untrue it is, you know, if they choose to believe it, then that's what it is. And you're fighting against something that just became, you know, Mm. defining you. And it's like, that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just a a malignant attack.
2: It's a little, yeah. If there's truth to it, it's it's a slither of who you are as a human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what frightens me about the way things are going with the internet, Mm. is that... You know, this tiny slither of somebody's life can, like, you know, like a cancer.
0: Yeah, define them. Can define people who want it. They're like. I guess what's more interesting in terms of what you're talking about and the group mentality or mob mentality of it is that pile-on thing. Is that you know that people that may or may not have anything going on in their life, you know, find meaning and satisfaction. Yeah. And the piling on—I yeah. imagine it's not that different than a lynch mob mentality. Yeah, and I'm not—I'm I'm sure that has been explored by psychologists. I don't know if you've done any. Oh, research. sure,
2: I've been—I've been looking into all of this stuff a lot. Uh, I think the what you know because you know what it is what, what we're saying, and we don't want to think this because we like to see ourselves as kind of nonconformists. But when we're piling on to somebody, what we're actually saying is, "Look at us—we're normal. This is the average." So what we're doing is we're defining normality by becoming furious with people outside of normality. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why I think this is, you know, making us a much. more... But that's
0: a that's a case with madness. But if it's a but it's something else. If it's justice driven, you know, that's different,
2: mm. right? Well, everyone who's um, been publicly shamed has done something wrong. But in a way, I mean, I can underwrite this book if I sort of. Don't make that the focus of it. Because, of course, they've all done something wrong or they wouldn't have been publicly shamed. Um, so really, it's like the power. I mean, public but shaming... But sometimes doing something wrong is being misunderstood. Yeah. Or or, 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 yeah. or contextualized mm.
0: uh, for uh, as a means to an end.
2: Yeah. But, you know, public shaming was banned as a punishment in the 19th century because it was too inhumane. I mean, we are doing something that was... We're routinely doing something that was banned for being too inhumane in the 19th century. You know, the, the victim of that, you know, has no defence. There's no possibility of re-entry. At least built into the prison system is... They've done their time. Now they can be allowed to re-enter society. With public shaming, that possibility of re-entry is, is, is narrowed to practically nothing
0: you know you really have to decide if you have the power to sort of you know publicly shame somebody like on twitter or whoever you are you're somebody of prominence that you know your moral compass better be very fucking solid number one and also what are you really getting out of it you know i i mean why are you the judge and executioner
2: i think we quite often shame people for the thing that we're most worried that we do ourselves Mm -hmm. um i think we feel this kind of dopamine rush when we realize that we're part of a big group of people who all feel the same way. Um,
0: But it comes from shame. That's an interesting thing to me. And that shame can be vague. But if you're a shaming person, you're overcompensating because, you know, you feel that way about yourself. Yeah. Shame's tricky business.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. You've got... I saw you tweet a copy of uh, the book Letting Go of Shame. Yeah. So you feel this way? Do you feel like you've got too much shame?
0: Well, I feel that, you know, my shame is specific and it's, uh, it's, it's body image related most of it.
2: Right. Because you were, because you had this, did you have a sort of fat? Yeah. I had
0: a very judgmental mother uh-huh. uh, and w- whose love was very conditional to, you know, whether or not I, I looked how she wanted me to look. Yeah.
2: I mean, how often would she, I mean, was this like a kind of weekly thing? Would she make kind of comments? It was just
0: a, it was an ideology. That, you know, she was ideologically um, anorexic because of her own shame of being a fat child. Right. So I was brought up, you know, without much nurturing and with a constant sort of judgment of whether or not my weight was proper. So, so would you like
2: be putting something in your mouth and then your mother would say something? Yeah. She'd make a little comment.
0: Yeah. Do you need that? <laughs> and that, you know, that goes way back. So like that, you know, and it's just it, this is just coming up. For me now, and you know, how do you deal with that? That, you know, you literally that the person that was supposed to at least pretend to unconditionally love you was judging you from day one. <laughs> so you don't have any context of, of or I, I don't have any context of, of being nurtured or being anything, but you know, you know I, got, I hope she you know, likes me because, you know, now I'm, you know, chubby.
2: But it doesn't help you to think, well, she did that because she was fucked up, so it's not personal.
0: I guess, but how do you, you know, intellectualizing any of this stuff is all well and good, but, you know, how do you effectively, you know, experience the grief of, of that being taken away from you is the really tricky thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can understand a lot of shit, but does that change my behavior? Does that, uh, you know, does the awareness of it in and of itself facilitate change? no because you know you have to get in there and tap the emotional processing of it in in order to 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 sort of like move through you know or you're never going to get back what you what wasn't given you yeah so you
2: know it's kind of weird because i've i mean i've basically had a a great life from like the age of 18 i'm 46 now i've had like you know i mean it's been great but for some reason I, i so often go back to like age 16 to 18. Two years out of those, you know. Hell? Yeah, two years of hell. Why do I, Why do we keep going back to that? You know, why not just, just be happy with the fact that everything's been great for the well, last 30 so, years? You know,
0: I have that, but I, I have it with... Uh, because w- what I found for me is that whatever was the emotional resonance of that that some part of you must have thought you deserved it yeah. and 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 somehow you got wired to think that you know whatever that was was really the truth but well, why do you think you go back to that period between well, 16 and 18 i mean in
2: some ways i think I'm, i never really think about this it's sort of interesting i think to think about it like why um in some ways i think it's good because i think like every situation i go into now like as a, as a writer as a journalist or whatever. Uh, I, um, I've got this sort of slightly, you know, neurotic, awkward sort of fucked up, you know, I'm never going to be uh, a completely mainstream part of society because for those two years at, you know, Cardiff High School, I was like being told over and over again that I'm not part of this. I'm some guy on the, on the edge of it. But that was the only time that happened? Yeah, pretty much. Well, it it's maybe three or four years. Or
0: but, but 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 but, 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 yeah. but don't. But but isn't there some party? Because I'm the kind of guy that I never felt like I fit in.
2: Mm. That you know. What, yeah, but that's what I mean exactly. So that stayed with me forever. So every time I go into a situation now, and I'm, like, I'm always a little bit mistrustful of somebody. I'm always wondering. There's a British um, journalist called Jeremy Paxman who says that every time he interviews a politician, um, the thought that goes through his head is, "Why is this bastard lying to me?" Um, And I think those kind of years of, like, having such a rough time at Cardiff High have stayed with me in that way. It's like every time I go into a situation, it's like if you're, like, fine, if you walk into a room and you're fucking fine and everybody loves you and it's all fine, you're not going to see the world as clearly as you'll see it if you have a fucked up teenage years, right?
0: Or a fucked up, all of it.
2: Yeah, it stays with you. So maybe it's good, you know. it's like it defines your point of view, Mm. But, but still,
0: like, the, the, the truth of the matter is is that, you know, in like in the psychopath book, I mean, you want to be liked yeah. and you're susceptible to charm. So, <laughs> so So you're vulnerable yeah. like that. And, and, you know, when you're like that as a teenager, you know, it's almost impossible not to get hurt. But you seem to be more calculating in that, you know... <laughs> uh that you know what you find is a, that you get a sort of like aha <laughs> <laughs> i
2: knew these fuckers were trying to fuck right me. right <laughs> like you, no i wouldn't say calculate because i do like people you know yeah i mean what's i mean you know i'd be a terrible i'd be i'd be a terrible writer if all i did was think why are these bastards lying to me right because i do really like people right um and, in fact, the way it 's morphed itself over the years, particularly as i 've got older, is not like these people are monsters, and they 're out to fuck me, but we 're all fucked we 're all damaged, you know yeah. we 're all vulnerable right and let 's enter into the situation thinking that, which is why i 'm so against you know public shaming, and it 's why i 'm so against that sort of journalism of humiliation and abuse because implied in all of that is i 'm great, and you 're an idiot, whereas everything I do. Is based on we're all fucked, and instead of like trying to have a sort of power game about it, let's just accept it, and in fact, think it's kind of you know like enjoy it and laugh about it, and and sort of revel in 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 life's absurdities and and kind of de and kind of de demonize it that way, you know? Sort no, of- no, I, I,
0: I'm I'm the same way, mm. I, and I and I feel that that's that's what I'm looking for, in and, 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 and it is is connection. Uh, and you know, sometimes when you find, you know, to find connection, uh, it's it's really around uh, those emotional wounds.
2: So, if you find yourself like with somebody who's like fine and not at all damaged, and everything about them's like fine, yeah, I, uh, do you kind of think I've got I've got nothing?
0: No, it's like uh, good for you. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a <laughs> because no because I believe that I believe that there are some people that were either you know, you know, had some stability growing up, even if they were bad kids or whatever, that the, the one thing that I, and I've talked about this before on the show is that, you know, I didn't have parents that had the fortitude to, to discipline or, or really guide me, you know, with certain values, uh, other than their own panic. Mm. So, you know, I think that people that, you know, if they were up against parents that were somewhat strict or, or made them do things for their own good, though they didn't realize it, that sometimes those people are a little, a little more stable in, in a lot of the things that I'm not particularly stable in. Yeah. Because I have no confidence around any of that. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't know how to be a good loser. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I tell you another good thing that's come from all of this, uh, of of like you know, having a kinda of rough teenage years, is you don't it took me quite a few years to, to realise this, but like it's okay to be a sort of it's all right to be to be an outsider, it's okay to sort of aim yeah. It took low. me a long
0: time to to get that. Yeah, you think it's aiming low, or or do you think it's like realizing that there is no normal that that the mainstream or what you're talking about in terms of of public shaming, you know, is is something that it's 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 not a good part of humanity. Yeah. It, it's not you know it, it's very it's it's, it's dim- dismissive it's cruel it, it, it lacks uh, you know a concern and, and it feeds something that's very unattractive
2: yeah and it's okay to just opt out of it I remember there's this radio award in Britain called the Sony Award and every year uh, I get nominated and, and don't win and I and I started to think it was like a kind of conspiracy to get me into a fucking tuxedo and send me to central London only to tell me to fuck off back home again and one year um, a couple of, about two years ago, like, I didn't win. And so I went outside and I saw a friend of mine who'd also just not won, a guy called Adam Buxton. And we kind of stood outside, you know, the, the Grosvenor Park Hotel or whatever it's called, Grosvenor House Hotel. And Adam said, do you know why we never win? And I said, why? And he said, because we're marginal. He said, the people that we like are marginal and it's fine. And uh, and in fact, I've written a film um, or co written in the film called Frank, which is about to get. It. This is a new one. Yeah, and it's kind of all really based on that—that that it's that you know we're marginal and it's fine. How is
0: how? What is it about?
2: Uh, it's about when I left Cardiff uh, for a couple of years, I joined a band called the Frank Side Bottom, Oh Blimey Big Band, and the singer wore a big fake head that he never took off, uh, with a sort of cartoon face painted yeah. on it. And in his kind of glory years, there was much speculation as to. Who, who he was underneath the head. Um, but you knew. I knew. But, but the first time I met him, um, it was at like the sound check. What happened was I was in an office and the phone rang and, and it was this guy and he's like in a frantic voice saying, you know, uh, we're supposed to be playing tonight. It's in this entertainment's office in London. We're supposed to be playing tonight but, but our keyboard player's like, yeah, fucked up. we can't make it. So we're going to have to cancel unless you know any keyboard players. So I said, um, I play keyboards. And he said, Well, you're in. And I said, <laughs> I said, But I don't know any of your songs. And he said, Wait a minute. And he kind of, mm. and then he came back and he said, Can you play C, F, and G? He <laughs> <I> said, Yeah. <laughs> he said, Well, you're in. <laughs> sound check, five o'clock. So I kind of got to the sound check and I was sort of looking. These men were there, like fiddling with stuff. And I said, like, I wonder which one's Frank. Because I knew that he wore big fake hair. Yeah. Too. Didn't know what he looked like. Yeah. And then out of the shadows, this, this, Face turns towards me and it's Frank at the soundtrack. Nobody there, just the band. And he's wearing his big fake head, uh-huh. just staring at me with this it's a mobile face. Yeah. And I knew that his real name was Chris. Yeah. So I said, Hello, Chris. I'm, I'm John. So it's like silence. And I said, Hello, Frank. And he went, Hello. <laughs> Oh my so, God. Yeah. so I joined this band. Now, how come I don't know what this band is? Were they popular? No, I mean, you know, not. No, <laughs> we, we were never. I mean, we, you know, in our kind of glory is we could play to maybe a 1,000 people a night, yeah. maybe 750. And this
0: was his gimmick.
2: Yeah, but it was more than a gimmick. I mean, it was like it, it consumed him. I mean, he... He, was
0: it a, a conceptual, conscious piece of art that yeah, he was involved with? In? Or was he, it a, was he justifying something else?
2: I, no, I think there was some. I think it was a kind of conceptual piece of art, about, about uh-huh. kind of innocence. Uh-huh. And that he was a kind of innocent uh-huh. figure, Frank. Um, and Anyway, so I was in his band for like three years, and then he fired us all for tax reasons. Uh-huh. He owed £30,000 back tax, and so we had to fire us all. Yeah. And then I didn't hear anything from him for like twenty years. And then the phone rang and his voice went, Oh and I went, Frank. Yeah. And uh and he was staging a comeback and he said, Did I want to write something about my time in the band, you know, to kinda of help him with his comeback? So I wrote this little thing in The Guardian. And and we wrote a film based on on this about a fictional character who wears a, a big fake hat. Um, and yeah, it's and it's all finished now. We've got Michael Fassbender playing the man in the, with the big, who wears the big fake head.
0: That's a big deal. Yeah. What was compelling to you about the character of that?
2: I think it was like that night when I sound, when I kind of turned up at the soundtrack, I felt it was like Alice, you know, being plucked from the suburbs to join this band. It was like Alice through the looking glass, uh-huh. stepping up on stage and being part of this band. And I think that was there was that. And also I think it was like a tribute to marginal people. You know, however much he might have wanted to make it in the mainstream, and I don't actually know whether he ever really did want to make it, but people like that. There's certain people out there, however much they want to make it in the mainstream, they never will. And when they come to that realisation that it's okay... So it's like a tribute to people like him well, it, and it, to Daniel Johnson and to right you know the shags and right. uh, you know that kind of crowd of people.
0: But it's interesting that 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 moment, like some people don't that was never necessarily their aspiration. They just couldn't help themselves, mm. but to do it the way they do it. Yeah. And you know, at some point, you have that moment where you're like, "Why don't more people like me?" And then you have to what I did was realize, well, I'm not really for everybody. Mm. and and if i you know in if I can you know find the people that 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 resonate with me then that that'd be nice you know, and this this facilitated that yeah. but uh but you know, in the still that you sent me, you know, and in reading your work, you know, like all I had to go on was this picture from this movie and the swipe write up about a fastbener, you know a attractive man playing this man with the who was wearing a mask but I didn't have any idea of the story, but but having you know read your stuff, uh, was there any um, fascination with you know what people put upon uh, that that you know you have this prosthetic that that assumes a, a consistency of of appearance and expression and and sort of something funny, but you, but people project onto that. Yeah, uh, there's a mystery to it, but there's also something interesting about an unchanging.
2: Yes. Uh, Head. Yeah. And in the film, actually in the film, for a little while, because he doesn't want to intimidate people. Yeah. So for a little while, he says his facial expressions out loud. Yeah. So like welcoming smile. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's sweet. Um, Yeah. I wonder whether, I mean, certainly in the film and in real life. Who directed it? Lenny Abrahamson. He's an Irish director Uh who made uh, Garage and Adam and Paul and what Richard did. And I co-wrote it with Peter Strawn who wrote Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. And he also wrote The Minister Goats, which I wrote the book, and he mm-hmm. wrote the screenplay. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's no question, I mean, I, my happiest memories of being in Frank's band in real life was when he would decide for whatever reason to just carry on being Frank. So it would be like 2 a.m. and we'd be driving up the M6, you know, back towards Manchester, and I'd be sitting there in a van next to a man wearing a big fake head. And nothing makes a young man feel more alive and <laughs> on an adventure than that. Um,
0: yeah. Did you get to know him beneath the head?
2: A bit, yeah. He was he was always quite secretive about his family when I was in the band. Um, one time he decided to become more professional sounding. He went through that thing that we were just talking about where he thought, you know, I need to become more popular. You know, I can't just go through life with only 750 people in any one town liking me. So we decided to become more professional. But Saturday. not take off the head. Not take off the head, but getting a saxophone player and a proper guitarist. And um, I got a call from the manager saying, Frank, Frank wants to rehearse. And my heart sank, you know, because there was never any need for us to rehearse because we were terrible. Yeah. Um, and I thought we were jumping the shark. And I turned <laughs> yeah. up at his house you know, there was a sax player and a uh-huh. kind of bass player, but it's all funky.
0: But so, you know, to tie it all in is that to me and you know, I you know, and I think that, you know, as I got older you, you know, hopefully you become this, but it seems like some people who are or creative or, or have a certain uh charisma uh you know, that, that people like you and I seem to be attracted to seem to have Made this decision earlier on, either you know, either consciously or not. Usually, if it's done consciously for for a reason to uh, exploit it, uh, it doesn't hold. But mm-hmm. some people are painfully uh, themselves and can't help it. Mm-hmm. And if they're public personalities, there's something very attractive about that. You know, like I know people in my life, certain performers, who you know fare either horribly or, or okay, mm-hmm. but rarely. Um, you know, transcend that level of marginality are really the 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 most uh, you know honest people because they can't help themselves.
2: Yeah, and in fact, when you try and um, be more mainstream and be more professional, you just come over it. Yeah, you, know, you know, it's kind of nuts, and nobody likes it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's good, right? Yeah, and it's a, it's kind of mature to come to that realization if you are one of those people that you know, fuck it, it's enough. It's yeah. fine yeah it's
0: fine so are we enough
2: yeah we're, it's, this is fine
0: alright thanks for talking to me thanks Back. that's it that's John Ronson I was uh, happy to talk to him it, it is a great book if, you, if, you, if you're interested in that the uh, psychopath task. I enjoyed it I enjoyed it I enjoyed the book look just go to WTFpod.com for all your WTFpod needs maybe leave a comment pick up the app For you newbies, the app. Get the free app. uh, Upgrade to premium. You can stream all 400 and God knows how many WTFs right into your head. Just like that. All right, you guys. Things are okay. All right? Things are okay. Right?
2: Boomer lives!